What truth can calm the troubled soul? This week I was visiting with a family in our church whose hearts are troubled by their experiences of grief and pain and loss. What truth can calm the troubled soul? Where is His grace and goodness known? It's not in our circumstances. It's in the great Redeemer's blood. I hope that that you will take time to meditate on the truths that we have sung, and I hope that you will consider the truths that we are going to hear this morning afresh and see the goodness of God uh, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last summer, the Washington Times had an article about a philosophy of religion teaching assistant at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Last year, on July 27, 2020, this teaching assistant responded to a survey posted on Twitter that asked the following question. If you were dropped 2,000 years back in time with nothing but the knowledge you have now, what would you do? Mr. Snedeker, the philosophy of religion teaching assistant, answered, quote, easy, I would find and assassinate Jesus of Nazareth. Not sure if this teaching assistant of the philosophy of religion knew that King Herod tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born. And then 33 years later, the Jewish leaders of the day used all their power to demand from the Roman governor, Pilate, to kill Jesus by crucifying him. And they were successful at killing Jesus. Trying to kill Jesus has been tried and successfully accomplished. Yet death could not hold Jesus captive very long. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. And therefore, trying to stop the spread of Christianity by killing its founder proved to be a strategic move, not for the stopping of Christianity, but for proving its truthfulness. Jesus had told his disciples prior to the crucifixion, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Could he be the life even in death? Could he be the life even after he was successfully killed? He proved he is the life even in death. He proved he is the life even after death. And this morning, I will invite you to open your Bibles and look at the theme of believing the resurrection of Jesus. Would you open God's Word to the book of Luke, 
chapter 24, we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 35. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, if you came this morning invited perhaps by a friend, or you came because it's Easter Sunday and you wanted to be in church and you don't have a Bible, we, we want to give you the Bible that's found in the pew in front of you. Uh, we'd, we would hope that you would take it home and read it. Uh, but for this morning, open it to page number 884 and listen to the Word of God this morning. Here is God's Word for us and for our hearts. But on the first day of the week, at the early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and 
And, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. And they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had known how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the proclamation of his word for our hearts? Let's pray. Father, you have raised Christ from the dead, and you have revealed to us the hope of believing in the resurrected Jesus. Father, this morning I ask that you would help me proclaim the message that we have just read. And I pray that you would help us hear it, open our hearts, make yourself known to us. And if there's anyone this morning here in this gathering whose eyes are still closed, spiritually speaking, I pray that you would open their eyes, make yourself known through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Believing the resurrection of Jesus. In this passage, we have two scenes that the gospel writer Luke unpacks for us. The first scene is the women coming to the tomb of the dead Jesus. Uh, the other 
scene is the scene of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Both stories, both scenes happen on the same day. And both announce a similar message. They announce that Jesus rose from the dead. But they also tell us how the disciples struggled to believe the news of the resurrection. And this morning, I wonder if there might be some among us who may struggle with hearing and believing this news of the resurrection of Jesus. Some might be among us who uh, would be like that teaching assistant who thought he could go and assassinate Jesus and be done with Jesus, not knowing that death could not contain and hold Jesus. The, the hearts of these disciples needed help to believe. And these stories tell us what that help is. As we look at these two scenes, we'll consider two major points in this message. If you'd like taking notes, here's the first major point. The crucified Jesus becomes the living one. The crucified Jesus becomes the living one. The passage begins with the women who went to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus. But instead of getting to anoint the dead body of Jesus, they hear a shocking announcement. Two angels appear to them and ask in verse 5, Why do you seek the living among the dead? What a change. The Jesus who had been killed by crucifixion, the Jesus who had been laid dead in this tomb three days earlier, that Jesus is now described as the living. The living. The angels further announce in verse 6, He is not here, but has risen. What amazing news. He's no longer in the tomb because he has defeated death itself. Let this news sink in. In the eyes of all the people that weekend, uh, Jesus seemed to have been defeated. At the hands of the chief priests and rulers of Israel, their plans had worked. He seemed to have been powerless in the, in the hands of the Roman soldiers. He even seemed to be powerless and helpless in carrying his own cross when the Roman soldiers had to ask someone else to pick up the cross and carry it out of, the, out of Jerusalem to the place where he was to be crucified. Jesus seemed to be helpless even in calling out to God to save him from dying. When he called God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though he had done nothing wrong, worthy of death, his life was taken by brutal violence, by crucifixion, and by death. And then he was laid in a tomb among the dead. 
And these women went to the tomb with spices, ready to anoint Jesus' dead body. It appeared that everything was over. But when they get to the tomb, they hear that he's not there any longer because he rose from the dead. Jesus defeated not the injustice of the Jewish leaders. Jesus defeated not the brutality of of the Roman authorities. Jesus defeated not the ploys and the schemes between the Jewish leaders and, and the Roman governor to be crucified. None of these were the things that Jesus sought to defeat. Jesus did not even defeat the, the entrance into the grave, laid dead. These are all things that you and I would want to defeat and escape. And Jesus did not escape them, though he could. Jesus took the path of being defeated by the suffering, by the shame, by the mocking, by the slapping, by the crown of thorns, by the whipping. Jesus took that path, though he alone was in power to call the angels and be rescued from every one of those experiences. Jesus took the path of being defeated to the point of death and death on the cross. None of these things were the things that Jesus sought to defeat. Jesus defeated another enemy, more powerful than all these experiences. Jesus defeated death and the sin that brings the death. That's why he's called the living among the dead. He had to first get to the point of being among the dead so that out of that, he would be called the living among the dead. He's not here but has risen. This is a Jesus that Christians proclaim and worship. The Christ of the Bible is not any longer among the dead, even though the human authorities and powers have successfully killed him. And this reality, my dear friends, presents us with two applications. First, because Jesus died and tasted death by the defeat of unjust human accusations at the hands of unjust human authorities and tasted the fullness of human griefs and sorrows, we as Christians cannot minimize the reality of fears, of sorrows, 
of griefs and pain. Such experiences remind us of the reality of human rebellion against God. If Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the sinless Son of God, tasted the pain, the griefs, the sorrows, the shame of humanity's sin, how much more do we who are sinners and have a corrupt nature bent towards rebelling against God, how much more do we rightfully deserve to taste every one of these experiences in our lives? We as Christians should not minimize the reality of fears, sorrows, griefs, and pain. But just as in the case of Jesus, the pain, the griefs, the sorrows of tasting the effects of sin was not the last word. So also with us. What this means for us is not that we escape from our fears and sorrows and pain now. We don't. But because of Jesus, we hear that they are no longer the last word for us, for those who belong to Him. Oh, dear follower of Christ, hold on to the hope that your pains, your sorrows, and griefs in this life, no matter how long or difficult they may be, are not the last word. But if you do not belong to Jesus, who is the living among the dead, the griefs and troubles of this life are merely the appetizers of an eternity spent in the torment of hell. So turn to Jesus by trusting in Him, in His death and in His resurrection. He is the living among the dead. And notice how the angels encourage the women to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Look at verse 6 and 7. The angels tell the women, here's what they don't tell them. You will get to see him physically. You will get to touch him. You will get to cling to him. It's not what they hear this morning. You know what they hear? To encourage them to believe that Jesus has been resurrected? Listen to verse 6 and 7. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. What is the evidence that these women should hold on to in order to believe the resurrection of Jesus. It is the word that Jesus had spoken to them earlier. Throughout this gospel, Jesus had instructed his disciples about his coming death and resurrection on the third day. And in order to be clear what Jesus has taught them, the, the angels give a summary of what Jesus has spoken to them earlier. Verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified 
and on the third day rise again. Jesus did not merely predict his future. Jesus did not merely predict that he will die and that he will resurrect. Jesus spoke of it as a divine necessity. Did you see and hear the words, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? He must be delivered. It's not merely that he will be delivered. It's not merely that it will happen that he will be delivered. It's that he must be delivered. This means that Jesus saw his death not being controlled ultimately by the Jewish leaders or by the Roman soldiers, but by a divine necessity, by a divine must. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. In one of the earlier instances, what Jesus did tell his disciples about his coming death Jesus said the following words to them in Luke 18. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This was the plan of God. That Jesus had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus did not merely predict his death. Jesus told us, informed us that a divine necessity. And if the death of Jesus was a divine necessity, if it had to be so, there's two things we can learn from it. The dreadful, the dreadful amount, the dreadful nature of our guilt If Jesus' death was a divine necessity, how dreadful is the guilt that required the Son of God to give his life in order to pay for our guilt by being delivered into the hands of sinful men? How dreadful is the guilt of our sin that it was necessary for the Son of God, for the Son of Man to be handed over? And if the resurrection of Jesus was a divine necessity, how powerful is the bondage of our sin that it required the Son of God to go against death itself and overcome it in its own home turf? The guilt of our sin, my dear friends, is so terribly dreadful. And the bondage of the power of of the, the power of the bondage of sin is so terribly great that it required the Son of God to both be killed, to cancel out guilt, and be raised from the dead to break the bondage of our sin. So when you consider that Jesus spoke about his death and about his resurrection, he did not merely predict it. He spoke of it as a divine necessity. And in that divine necessity, it shows the dreadfulness of our guilt, and the power of our bondage. Let that sink in. We're told in verse 8 that the women remembered his words. 
And what do they do with remembering the words of Jesus who spoke about his coming death and resurrection as a divine necessity? They went back to the disciples and told them everything. The empty tomb, the words of the angels. And you would expect the disciples to just start jumping and dancing and start crying, Hallelujah! We had heard this before and we were hoping it would come true. Oh, praise God! Is that what they do? No. Look at verse 11. But these words seem to them as an idle tale. And they did not believe them. The people who hear this news are not the secularist humanists of 21st century. The people who first heard this news are the ones who had followed Jesus for the previous three years and had been hearing the teachings of Jesus for the past three years and have heard Jesus speak explicitly about his coming death and about his coming resurrection. And it is these folks. And if you wonder, it's like, Jesus, if you had just used some PowerPoints, you know, you would have instilled in these disciples the images of what would happen to you. They would have probably gotten it. If you just, if you just increased your teaching style, is that no? They did not suffer from having a second-rate teacher. All these years, they had been following and, and were hearing the teaching of Jesus Christ. And yet, after all that teaching and hearing, when it happens, when the resurrection morning comes, they hear the news proclaimed through these women, and they heard these words as idle tale, and they did not believe them. Friends, there is a beloved Easter hymn whose lyrics say, because she lives, I can face tomorrow. And try this next one. Because she lives, all is gone. It was written to be an encouraging song that lifts us up from our fears. And I hope it does. But hear the response of the disciples when they heard that Jesus rose from the dead. Their fears were not gone. They were not able to face tomorrow. They were shutting him, themselves up in the room with the closed doors and locked because they were afraid. The struggle of the disciples to believe the news of the resurrection teaches us that just because we might struggle to believe it does not mean that it did not happen. It also teaches us that somehow the struggle to believe the resurrection doesn't come instantly to everyone. And it did not even come easily to the disciples of Jesus. 
the reality of Jesus is the resurrection, my dear friends, does not depend on our faith. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus does not depend on our faith. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus does not depend on our experience of the resurrected Jesus. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus does not depend on our experience of the reality of Jesus. It does not depend on our feelings of whether we feel Jesus to be close to us. So even, even if we brush off the resurrection of Jesus because it's hard to believe, like it was for the disciples, or because we didn't see him, or it's just hard for us to feel this hope. While all of these things may be true for the disciples in this morning of the resurrection, none of those experiences affect the reality, the living one among the dead has risen. He is alive. Now the journey of embracing the news that the dead Jesus became the living one was not a quick journey for everyone, not even for the disciples. And this is where the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus picks up. Point number two in the story, in the unfolding of the news about the resurrection of Jesus, is that the living Jesus challenges slow hearts. This is point number two. The living Jesus challenges slow hearts. Perhaps this morning you may find yourself in the company of the disciples on the resurrection morning. Hard to believe that this really happened. Unless I would feel or experience or see or touch, this really happened. And the living Jesus, in the story of, the, of, of meeting the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, shows us a powerful lesson. In order to understand what's the, the lesson in the second story, let's look at the very end of it and walk backwards. At the end of the second story, the followers of Jesus who went to Emmaus end up returning to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the 11 that they have seen the living Lord. But before they get to tell them their experience, they hear the same news from the 11. They hear the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, what convinced the 11 the doubtful 11 from earlier in the morning, what convinced them that Jesus was indeed alive was that the Lord appeared to Peter. And you might say, that's what I need too. That's what I need to believe. If, if, if the Lord Jesus would appear to me like it did to Peter. But the gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had no interest in telling us the details of how Jesus appeared to Peter. Don't you think that would be the more important part? To see how, how, how Jesus appeared to the, to the big, big apostle Peter? Instead, Luke found it more necessary for us to know the details of what Jesus did when he appeared to the, these other two followers. About one of them, we don't even know his name. He seemed, they seemed to be the insignificant ones. 
But Jesus appears not to Peter, he, uh, or Jesus appears to Peter, but Luke doesn't tell us about the appearance to Peter. What about the appearance to these two disciples? The spotlight is not on Peter. The spotlight is on these two disciples. Why? What's the point of telling how Jesus appears to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? It is not to convince them that he has risen, but to challenge the slowness of their hearts. Now, this is a point of the appearance of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. The living Jesus challenges slow hearts. And here's how Luke unpacks the story. Two of Jesus' followers going to Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem, and Jesus appears to them. But Luke tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. Verses 15 and 16, while they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This means that Jesus is interested not simply to appear to his disciples and to convince them through his physical appearance that it is him. Jesus is not interested in that. Jesus' aim is not to convince them through his physical appearance that he is resurrected. If this was his aim, then he would have appeared to them and immediately made himself recognized to them. But that's not the aim of Jesus. And you might be wondering, Lord, why are you taking this approach of appearing to these disciples in such an unrecognizable way? Hold this question in mind. When the unrecognized Jesus asks them what they're talking about, Luke tells us how they reacted. Look at verse 17. As they were walking, when Jesus asked them what they're talking about, they are so shocked by the question that they stopped. And Luke tells us not only that they stopped from their walk, but Luke tells us what they looked like. They look at verse 17. They stood still, looking sad. These two disciples stopped in their, in their walks, and their physical appearance was a clear window into their souls. Sadness was noticeable and unmistakable. And one of them asks in bewilderment, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he's saying to their, to their they're saying to the, the companion, what kind of visitor are you? Are you in a category by yourself? Are you, are you so ignorant of what has happened in Jerusalem? Now, do you see the irony in their question? As a reader, we know the things that are happening. Do you see the irony? As it turns out, this unrecognized traveler is indeed in a category by himself. Not because he does not know what has taken place in Jerusalem those days, but because he's the one to whom all of those things have happened. And it is they who cannot recognize him. It is they who do not fully understand what has happened in Jerusalem those days. 
Friends, do you ever feel tempted to tell God, Lord, don't you know what is happening in my life? And the Lord is actually the only one who truly knows what is happening in our lives, even better than we know it ourselves. And that's the same thing going on here with these disciples. Are you the only one who does not know what has happened in Jerusalem these days? They only knew who they were talking to. But Jesus keeps himself unrecognized. You might have said, this would have been a great setup, Lord. Right now, open their eyes. Let, let them see you. Wouldn't that be a great thing? And Jesus keeps calm. He doesn't answer their question. He asks them another question. What things? And they go on to describe Jesus. It's one of the beautiful summaries about Jesus in this gospel. They, they summarize who Jesus was. And then they say, we had hoped that he was the one who redeemed Israel. And just imagine the, the tone of sadness after they described Jesus as, as a man mighty in word and deed. And they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But the death of Jesus at the hand of the chief priests dashed all their hopes for the redemption. And the news of the resurrection of Jesus, which they did hear from the women, seemed so bizarre, seemed so out of this world, that they could not believe it. They're still speaking these words in sadness. And they even told Jesus that some of them went to the, to the tomb in the morning to check to see what the women had reported. They went to the tomb. They saw that the tomb was empty. And they said, but they were not able to see Jesus. Do you see the sadness? The sadness is that they were not able to see Jesus. They heard this news. Their, their hopes were dashed. The tomb was empty. But they're still sad because they could not see Jesus. And here again, an opportunity. Jesus, this is a perfect setup. Open their, their eyes. Let them see you now. And Jesus doesn't do it. He keeps lingering. Is he playing hide and seek? Is Jesus just teasing out their grief and sadness? It seems like he, the Lord is, is letting their, their sadness and, and, and sorrow keep lingering on. Jesus finds them sad, hopeless, bizarre in their thinking. And notice... Jesus does, instead of appearing to them, instead of opening their eyes to see and help them recognize him, look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. This is why Jesus is lingering. This is why Jesus is delaying appearing to them in a recognizable way. Jesus wants to reveal to them and deal with their hearts before he deals with their eyes. And it's this moment in the dialogue that, that helps us understand 
that before Jesus will prove himself by physically appearing to them in a recognizable way, Jesus wants to convince them to believe his resurrection by looking at another source than their physical eyes and physical experience. And you may say, what is that other source? And the answer is the scriptures, the word of God. So Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. Now, that doesn't mean stupid. Foolish ones could also be translated as the one who, who doesn't understand, lacking understanding. And then the slowness, the slowness of heart, the slowness of heart to believe. To believe what? To believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Jesus goes on and says, was it not necessary? Do you hear an echo from what the angels told the women that morning? Was it not necessary? Was it, was it not a, a must happen? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What is Jesus doing here? He's showing these to disciples that the things that they had trouble with were not because they lacked the sensory experience of seeing Jesus. The trouble of believing was the slowness of their hearts to believe what God had already revealed in the Old Testament about Jesus. According to the Old Testament, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer all these things and then to be resurrected into glory. And then Jesus takes them on a survey of the Old Testament, showing them how the entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus, to the necessity of his suffering and death and resurrection. But they missed to understand the Old Testament. They missed to believe that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written to point to Jesus. And because of that, they missed not only believing that Jesus had to rise, they actually missed believing that Jesus had to die. They thought death was an obstacle to the redemption of God's people. Jesus has to tell them, no, death is the means by which the Son of Man will redeem his people. Oh, what a change. They missed understanding not only the resurrection of Jesus, they missed understanding that Jesus had to die. For them, the suffering and death of Jesus seemed to put an end to their hopes that he would be their redeemer. Jesus shows them from the Old Testament that the Redeemer had to die in order to redeem them. The entire old sacrificial system pointed to the truth that, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God ordained the sacrifices of the Old Testament to teach the Israelites that He provided, He would provide a substitute for the cleansing of their sins. And that substitute was not merely God choosing to forgive. God could not forgive sin without the shedding of blood. And if there's a lesson I wish to be present to here 
when Jesus was teaching in his earthly life, it would be this moment on the road to Emmaus. To hear and understand from Jesus, how Jesus helped his disciples to see the various ways the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. That's why for Christians, the study of the Old Testament is imperative if we're going to understand who Jesus really is. To read the Old Testament without seeing how it points forward to Jesus is to misread it. If we read and teach the Old Testament without thinking how it points to Jesus, we are in the same category as these two disciples were, foolish ones and slow of heart. It's not uncommon, my dear friends, to be in churches that teach the Old Testament without ever referencing Jesus. How sad. How sad. Jesus is teaching us here how to read the Old Testament. To read it as pointing to Him. Yet their hearts were both foolish and slow in making these connections. And therefore they mis misunderstand what happened in Jerusalem that weekend. Now, some people today may still think, if I could just see Jesus, I would believe. But friends, here is Jesus, physically present with his disciples, choosing to remain unrecognized before their eyes until he gives them this lesson to learn. More importantly than, than seeing Jesus and being convinced of his resurrection through our sensory experience is to see Jesus in the writings of the word of God as God has revealed them to us centuries before Jesus ever was incarnate on earth. The revelation of God in the scriptures is a more weighty evidence of the resurrection of Jesus than our experience of Jesus. What God revealed to us in his word is more trustworthy of belief than what we experience or perceive. So let your faith be grounded in what God reveals more than in what you experience. Let this lesson of the resurrection day grip your heart that Jesus intentionally kept himself unrecognized and delayed that because this lesson was important for them to get. Believe the resurrection of Jesus because God said so. Because the word of God tells us so. What we experience is always limited by what we are able to understand. So don't put your faith ultimately just in what you are able to experience put your faith in what God reveals after this great lesson in how the Old Testament points to Jesus and, and Jesus teaching his disciples to, to look for Christ in the Old Testament the journey almost comes to an end Jesus wants to keep going the disciples tell him to this unrecognized traveler no don't, don't go the, the day's almost over stay with us have dinner with us, stay here overnight. And Jesus takes him up on the offer. And he does something a little different. He does what no visitor 
would normally do. You know, you're, you're visiting at someone's house. You let them serve you. You let them host you. Jesus, Jesus takes the bread, prays for it, breaks it, and he gives it to them. Jesus is the one who's actually playing the role of the host here. Unrealized to them. And in this moment, Jesus finally does what, what they needed. He finally makes himself recognized to their eyes. And as soon as he does that, he vanishes from their, from their midst. And the disciples make a statement that I think highlights what Luke wants to teach us here in this passage. Look at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What changes sad hearts? Hopeless, unbelieving hearts. What changes hearts? proclamation of the scriptures. What changes hearts from being sad, unbelieving, hopeless, to being burning hearts? It's a proclamation of the word of God. As they heard what Jesus was teaching them from the scriptures, pointing to Jesus, that is what began burning up in their hearts. What a change! from slow hearts to burning hearts. And what caused their hearts to begin burning is Jesus teaching the scriptures, even though he was still unrecognized to their, heart, to their eyes. Oh, friends, the scriptures have the power to turn slow hearts into burning hearts. When we understand what God intended it to say through the scriptures about his son, Jesus. And that's, that's true even today. What turns the heart to begin burning is the hearing of the scriptures rightly proclaimed as pointing to Jesus. Friends, is your heart slow to believe what God has revealed? What you need to hear is that the same scriptures that Jesus talked about, about himself, and that the scriptures are all fulfilled in Jesus who fulfilled them all through his suffering, death, and resurrection. Friends, a faithful proclamation of the word of God as God intended it, not as support for mere moralism, not as support for merely our own human ideas, not as a jumping board for motivational talks, not as a springboard for therapeutic messages, but to hear the word of God with the intention that God had for it as pointing to Jesus that is what we need to hear. And that is what begins burning our hearts again. God intended all scripture to ultimately point to the redemption that comes through Jesus' perfect obedience, through his suffering and death as a substitute for sinners, and through his triumph over sin and death, so that all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus would have their sins forgiven and be granted everlasting life. 
wonder this morning if you are among those who have turned to Jesus. I wonder if you are among those who have turned to the Jesus who was crucified and is now the living among the dead. If you have not turned to him, I want to plead with you today. Believe on him. Put your trust in him. Put your trust in his death on your behalf for your sin. Put your trust in his resurrection. He was raised from the dead. If you'd like to know more what that means, to put your trust in him, the pastors of this church or anyone who's a member of this church would love to talk to you. When the service is over, come and talk to us. We would love to talk to you about what this means. What a change from unbelieving hearts to burning hearts. These two disciples found the rest of the eleven convinced that Jesus has risen because he appeared to Peter. They too became convinced that Jesus has risen. But before they were able to recognize him with their eyes, they needed to hear that God has already spoken of this in the word. And therefore, believing in the, in the resurrection of Jesus and understanding what it signifies, what we need for that belief is believing the word of God. Charles Simeon was one of the giant expository preachers of the 18th century. He tells a story of how he became converted. It happened on an Easter Sunday on April 4th, 1779. He arrived a week earlier at Cambridge as a student. He was not a Christian. He was unconverted. The provost told him that the following weekend he was expected to participate in the Lord's Supper. And even though Simeon was unconverted, he knew enough about Christianity to realize that he should not participate in the Lord's Supper lightly or unworthily. So he began to figure out what the Lord's Supper was about. He read a book about the Lord's Supper, which explained how the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus and how Jesus ultimately fulfilled all that the Old Testament sacrifices were aimed to portray. And through the reading of that explanation of the Old Testament sacrifices and how they point to Jesus, Charles Simeon was converted. And here is his account, his own words, from the journal that he wrote of what happened in his mind as he read about the Old Testament sacrifices. He said the following, in Passion Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect. Quote, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer 
all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And on the Wednesday, I began to have a hope of mercy. And on the Thursday, that hope increased. And on the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4th, I woke early with those words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the table, Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest, sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. That is how the Lord saved Simeon. By coming to grips that the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to God's design that sinners can lay their guilt on someone else who fully paid for all their sins, past, present, and future. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that all that God has done in Christ is true. Friends, the crucified Jesus became the living one. Would you remember his words? The living Jesus challenges slow hearts to believe. Would you let his word begin burning in your heart as you consider all that God has revealed to us about his redemption through Jesus from Genesis to Revelation? Believe the resurrection of Jesus, and have life in his name. Let's pray.